My name is Dr. Ian Storch. I'm a board-certified gastroenterologist and osteopathic physician, and you are listening to DO or Do Not. If you're interested in joining our team or have suggestions or comments, please contact us at doordonotpodcast.com. Share our link with your friends and like us on Apple Podcasts, Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. We hope you enjoy this episode. Earlier this year, we interviewed Jeremy Pullman, an exemplary osteopathic physician who wrote a book called Core Concepts to help osteopathic students prepare for the Comlex exam. I spoke to Jeremy a few weeks ago, and he told me that he will be at OMED, the osteopathic conference, which is being held in Boston to help promote his book. He invited the DO or Do Not team to come and spend time at the booth, talk about his book, and do live interviews with osteopaths and osteopathic students about their experiences. We're excited to take him up on the offer and will be present at OMED on Saturday, October 29th from 9 to 6 at booth 303. If you're there, we would love to see you and have you on the podcast. Please stop by and say hello. Hello, everyone. My name is Akito Nickel. I'm a fourth-year student at the NYIT College of Osteopathic Medicine, and you are listening to the DO or Do Not podcast. In this episode of DO or Do Not, we will interview Dr. Manish Sharma. Dr. Sharma is a graduate of the New York College of Osteopathic Medicine, a board-certified emergency physician, associate professor at Weill Cornell Medicine, and Chairman of the Emergency Department at New York Presbyterian Queens. We are honored and thrilled to hear about his extensive experience in education and leadership, and we hope you find his story inspiring and enlightening. Without further ado, here is Dr. Sharma. Good evening, Dr. Sharma. Thanks for taking time out of your evening to join us today on the uh, Do or Do Not podcast. Totally my pleasure. Thank you for inviting me. And I'm very excited for all the things you're going to ask me that I hope I will answer as clearly as possible without hedging. I'm sure we'll have no problems there. The first question we like to ask a lot of people is, uh, what does a normal workday look like for you if such a thing exists? Start in the morning and take us through your roles and responsibilities as a chairman of emergency medicine at NYPQ. So I will say the responsibilities are everything, because as the the leader of a department, it, there is nothing that affects your department that won't reach you. And if anyone's ever worked in an emergency department or understands, the ER is the center of the universe. And there is pretty much no department, whether it be oncology, whether it be neurology, whether it be surgery, medicine, stroke, trauma that doesn't affect or work with the emergency department. So it's hard to describe a typical workday, but I can tell you typically my responsibilities are to stay clinically relevant because rarely do people respect people who aren't doing clinical care. So that's the forefront. So I work clinical shifts. And on the days I work clinical shifts, I am like any other doctor. I go to a shift, I supervise residents, I supervise PAs, I interact with patients. And just based on a level of responsibility, that's usually once a week. 
different departments have different uh, responsibilities of their chairs or their chiefs or their directors or whatever you call them. But mine is once a week clinical to stay on top of it. And I try my best and I usually succeed in that I try to work in a month on an overnight shift, a swing shift and a day shift. And I do that so that I can interact with different staff who are either night dedicated or day dedicated so they can see my face. They can tell me what is troubling them. And then the other four to five to six days, and I mean that because there is no five-day work week when you're a chairman, specifically emergency medicine, they may be in other departments, but you're available to people around you pretty much every day when they need you. Rarely do they need to escalate to you on minor things, but when something is affecting patient care or throughput or more specifically a quality issue, you have to be available 24-7. So the other four to five to six days are committee meetings or meetings about patient care related issues, engaging with the NYP enterprise itself or Envision Health because we're contracted employees with NYP. Uh, And then there's a lot of walking around the ER because the most important part of my job is to let people who work with me, and I hate the word for me, with me know that I'm there to support them. Whenever I interview for somebody who may eventually end up taking my job 20 years from now, I ask them, so why are you doing it? And the answer I want to hear is because I want to help my colleagues provide better care. It certainly doesn't sound like a typical workday, that's for sure. And I've often been told that the emergency department is one of the few places in the hospital that communicates with every other service. Uh, There's no service that goes untouched by the emergency department. But would you agree with that statement? I would 100% agree with it. And I can tell you that the majority of patients that reach community hospitals or we'll just say non-full academic centers like a Wild Cornell Columbia, if they're going to be inpatients in your hospital, they're going to come through the ER, at least 80 to 85% of them. And if they do, all care starts in the ED and you kind of set the pace and the quality of care that anyone's going to get inside the hospital. So that's where you are now. Let's turn back time a little bit and see where you started. So when and how did you become interested in medicine and decide you wanted to be a doctor? That's pretty easy. So when I was, I think, 11 years old, and I went to my mom's office as a physician, and I saw how much people liked her and how much they kept talking her up to their to her 11-year-old son and kept saying, your mom is such an awesome person. Do you know she takes care of me? And things of that sort, I was like, I want to be my mom. <laughs> and at that point, being my mom went, I wanted to be a doctor because my mom was a doctor and she was more than a doctor. She was almost <laughs> like a social worker, a case manager. And anybody who had anything, whether medical or other concerns, came to my mother to seek help. So somewhere around that 9 to 12 range is where I said, I want to be my mother. And that was a doctor. That's incredible. It really sounds like your mom was a big inspirational figure for you there. So going forward, uh, where did you go to undergraduate? And were there any experiences there that further led you into medicine and perhaps specifically osteopathic school? So I went to NYU as an undergrad, and I did it mostly to escape Long Island. (laughs) You know, uh, I'm sure a lot of people listening listening to this are living in Long Island. And I wanted, and I grew up in Brooklyn and Queens and then Long Island for high school and, you know, middle school. And I wanted to escape. I wanted to get out. I wanted to go to what I considered a more diverse area. And I went to NYU undergrad. And I went in there with a 
understanding that I was pre-med. So nothing there either changed my mind or convinced me of anything. But I do remember applying to medical school and asking my mother specifically, once again, this is going to go back to my mother a lot, okay? (laughs) So uh, asking my mother, hey, do you know what DO school is? And she said, I don't. And so she went to her colleague in her in her medical practice and asked that person. And he simply walked her to his front of his door and pointed to his title. And she was like, oh, you're a DO. <laughs> he didn't even understand the difference. And she's just like, oh, well, I'm not going to leave his name blank. But doctor told me, oh, he's a DO. So why aren't you applying to DO schools? So at that point, I researched even more than I had. And I understood the philosophical, the philosophical differences between the allopathic and osteopathic education models. And at that point, I applied to NICOM because I wanted to be a doctor. That's all that mattered to me. So I applied both allopathic and osteopathic at that point. So now that you've ended up at NICOM, uh, how would you describe your experience at NICOM? Did you do any special extracurricular activities? Did you do research? How was your time there? Mostly, I just wanted to learn as much as I could. And that wasn't just Nikon, it was NYIT. So going in, registering and enrolling in Nikon, I saw that they had mentioned something at that time in the in like the handbook about a, an optional MBA. And I was like, oh, I, I've always been really good at math. I love engaging with people, not just with medicine, but other ways. So I found out more about the MBA. I realized there were some prerequisites that I hadn't taken at NYU. So I took them at a local community college just so I can enroll in it. Uh, at that point, they accepted the MCAT score in, in, in replacement of a GMAT. I had taken a GMAT too, just for, for the fun of it. Yeah, I do a lot of things for the fun of it. But um, I enrolled in the MBA and then I very quickly found two other c- colleagues who were enrolling in NICOM to convince them and their parents to let get them enrolled in it. So we could be a, a th- like almost like a, a triad doing the MBA and the DO together. Those two people, I'm happy to name them right now, Sachin Kapoor and Vinay Sooth, were in my class, my two closest, two of my five closest friends at NICOM, and uh, we did the MBA together. How did you come to pursue emergency medicine specifically? Uh, what about it appealed to you? Now it switches from my mother to my brother. So my brother is currently the academic chair of emergency medicine at Weill Cornell, which is an affiliated hospital with NYP Queens. So my brother and I are 16 months apart. I think I don't think we've ever had a friend uh, who we didn't have in common. We went to the same high school short of a year. So I, I remember him being in medical school and him saying, Manish, I think emergency medicine will be great for you. Now, as older brothers or siblings will realize your others uh, manipulate you, he wanted to go into emergency medicine. So he's like, oh, I want my older brother to go into emergency medicine, too. So he kind of opened the door. My only experience in emergency medicine up to that point was, uh, you know, through clerkships, rotating through surgery or medicine. And it was always like, oh, my God, I have a patient in the ER. Oh, more work. But when I actually did a true six-week rotation, I realized how amazing that field was. And I went and I called my brother and I was like, oh, my God, you're so right. This is so right for me. And that rotation was at Kings County, you know, a very underserved community. It was a phenomenal rotation that totally committed me to going into this field. Out of curiosity, what about the uh, rotation at Kings County really blew you away like that? What about it made it such a phenomenal experience for you? 
first and foremost, they let me see patients. They let me have time with patients. The patients were welcoming to anybody taking care of them. They were more happy that somebody with a white coat was coming up and was going to talk to them. Procedurally, the residents were very engaging. The attendings were very lax in terms of like, oh, yeah, no, I'm going to show you how to do this right. It was just the overall feel and the culture of that environment that just made me want to make that my future in being a physician. It sounds like it was a very, very impactful experience. And certainly positive rotation can really make all the difference in the direction of one's career in medicine. I can say that for sure. So when it came time to apply for residencies, what factors did you consider in applying to and ultimately choosing a program? I I kind of spoke to other people who had applied before. So I spoke to a class above and everyone said it was going to be very hard to match in an EM residency. They said you had in rotated at Barnabas, which was Honestly, quite honestly, at the time I was there, like the majority of people went to emergency medicine went from NICOM to St. Barnabas. I don't think Good Samaritan existed at that time in terms of residency programs. So I applied very broadly. I applied to places that were both three-year, that were four-year, that were first-year as doing an osteopathic internship and then accepting you in. I, I just basically chose locations where I wanted to go. So I will tell you that I applied only specifically to Northeast programs with the exception of one. Here's where the mother comes in. So the mother reads the Mayo Clinic journal, right? Yes, <laughs> yeah. of course. Yeah. And so the Mayo, the Mayo Clinic had started their first year class of emergency medicine residency program. So I applied. I got an interview. I went to Rochester, Minnesota. And I was so happy that I got the interview because my mom was happy. And then I went there and I went to, you know, they housed you there. You pay for your flight. And I stayed at a local hotel and I went to the mall across the street and went to my favorite restaurant, Taco Bell. And they couldn't make my Mexican pizza correctly. So as much as my mom thinks I was wowed, if you can't make my Mexican pizza correctly, I can't live there for three years. (laughs) I agree with you entirely. That is absolutely criminal that they couldn't nail the Mexican pizza. (laughs) You know what they did? They, They put two tostada shells and made a Mexican pizza. And we all know that a tostada shell and a Mexican pizza shell are very different. Unacceptable. Absolutely unacceptable. I would uh, not even rank the program at that point. (laughs) (laughs) All right. So where did you end up for uh, residency then? So I got very lucky. And my experience at Kings County, again, I worked with a Dr. David Denicky, a, a really phenomenal physician. And I told him I was applying there. He loved me. I used to like pick up extra shifts to just work with him. He said, you know, by the way, I also moonlighted at Methodist Hospital at the time. I'm like, oh, did you apply there? I said, I did. He goes, okay, well, I'm going to give someone a call. And the next day I got a call from them accepting me for an interview. So I went there, I interviewed. And honestly, the most important thing about the residency program you choose is about the connections you make on your interview day. And they were actually better than the connections I had made over six weeks at, at Kings County. So I ranked Brooklyn Methodist first. I met with a Dr. Larry Melnicker who he and I, all, what we talked about was our passion, which is the New York Mets. And we talked about that, the 1986 season. We talked about so many things. We talked about what drives us as doctors, and I ranked them first. And uh, I remember texting, uh, no, emailing Dr. Dennehy, just saying, oh, my God, thank you so much. I think I found my new home. And that's mm-hmm. where it ended up. And I was very lucky that when I, you know, on match day, I opened it up. And I was, just, well, first, pre-match day, I was like, oh, I matched. I was so happy. And then finding out 
And I remember driving that day to Brooklyn Methodist to say, oh my God, thank you so much. And they're like, oh yeah, we found out yesterday. I'm like, you did? I didn't understand that the programs find out the day before. Wow, I didn't know that either. But yeah, so, that, so basically the programs find out on the day before you find out who they're matching and they have to keep it a secret. It's incredible to hear that you were able to make such a connection just over the interview. Yeah, uh, I mean, I, I'll tell you, the chairman, Dr. Bove, was just so easy to talk to. He was just like a normal guy. The program director, I think I said something wrong to. I almost said something where I was like, oh, I just totally messed it up. And then luckily the chairman interview was later and I interviewed with him and he was like, oh, no, no, don't worry about it. I'll, I'll talk to Ted. I'll, I'll tell him that you didn't mean to say that. And then meeting with all these people, it just felt it just felt so mostly comfortable. So you found your home and residency. Mm-hmm. And then after that. So what happened was I was graduating Brooklyn Methodist. Brooklyn Methodist is in Park Slope, Brooklyn. There's never they're never hard up. I'll say that word hard up to find physicians who want to work there. Park Slope is the place people want to live. And Brooklyn Methodist is a very good hospital and people want to work there. So I was almost competing with half of my classmates graduating to who's going to get that one job as an attending at that hospital. And it was me. I got lucky. So lucky or I was good enough. It doesn't matter, but I got the job. And uh, Dr. Melnicker, who's the one who I bonded with most on the, and he said, look, we're starting an ultrasound fellowship here. Do you want to be my first ultrasound fellow? I said, sure. Unfortunately, the chairman didn't understand that that meant fellow hours for clinical shifts. So I still got the full complement of new attending shifts, which is, you know, a lot. And I realized about three months in, as much as I like well, ultrasound, I can't work a 210-hour month. No one can work a 210-hour month. But it was basically like having three to four shifts a week and doing fellowship responsibilities. I couldn't do that. Now, it's evolved over time. It's much, much more streamlined now where fellows do half clinical hours, you know, as uh, full-time attendings, and there's a lot of education and Claire, which is, you know, clinical learning environment, overseeing everything to making sure it's a conducive environment to learn, not just produce. So it's very different now than it was in, you know, 2003. Now that you've landed at your first job as an attending, how eventually did you get to becoming the chair of emergency medicine at New York Presbyterian Queens? Yeah, long journey and I'll speak fast. So I stayed at Brooklyn Methodist. I, w- I was an attending for the first year, saw tons of patients, worked lots of, lots of shifts. The clerkship director who ran all the rotations with the medical students left and uh, it was my job because everyone seemed to think I would be perfect at it. So I took it. So I did that for about a year and a half. I moved on to something different because, you know, change is good. It teaches you something new. I moved on to quality, uh, like an associate director of quality. I did that for a little bit. And then at some point I decided, you know, I, w- I don't want to be a residency director because I love teaching residents. And you will learn in your career, all of you, that at some point the growth is great, but it can't always happen where you are at, at that point. Sometimes you have to leave the environment you're in for people to accept you into, into this new role because they've seen you for six years in a different role. And it's very hard for people to change their impressions of you. So I left and I went to Goodsam out in Long Island and I worked there for about 11 months and uh, I thought that that's where I was going to settle and I was probably going to be an assistant program director and more there. But I very quickly realized why I <laughs> left Long Island to go to the city. Uh, so that didn't last. So I moved. And then I was very fortunate that my brother knew somebody at NYP Queens, Dr. Jay Gupta, who's now the chair over at 
They changed the name. It's, oh, it used to be Southside. Now it's South Shore University Hospital. So he's a chair there. He recruited me to NYP Queens as like a faculty member in terms of teaching. And then I pretty quickly became an assistant residency director and then became an associate residency director. And then there was some movement into another hospital. Leaving Queens, realizing 10 months later, I love my patients. I love my environment. I came right back to Queens. And then an opportunity opened up to, because my chairman of, she was the chair there for 30 years, Dr. Diane Sixsmith, just one of my best bosses ever. She was retiring. They had a leadership change and an associate chair position opened up. And I said, but I don't want to be a chair. So give an MBA. I'm like, yeah, but I just did it for fun. And I was like, I want to be the PD. She's like, just do me a favor. I'm leaving. Take care of the department after I leave. I'm retiring. Be an associate chair. I'm like, uh, okay, sure. What am I going to do? You're going to do quality. I'm like, oh, I did that before. So, oh, you're going to lead, you're going to lead stroke and lead STEMI. You're going to lead. I'm like, okay, cool. So I just did that. I did it well enough that I became vice chair. And then I didn't want to be chair, but I kind of, there were a lot of opportunities in 2016. I interviewed at, as far as Portland, Oregon, I interviewed at Coney Island Hospital, I interviewed at Northwell Hospitals, and I took a chair position at one of their hospitals. Unfortunately, my chair at Queens had to leave after I left. So I was fortunate enough to come back in that chair position at Queens, mostly because of the, the success that I'd had and, and outcomes, because that's what it, it's about. It's not about just being a nice guy. It's not just about, about having outcomes. You got to have both. You got to be the person that people feel comfortable coming to for help. And you have to produce. It can't be just one of those two things. So that's what my mom taught me a long time ago. Oh, I said mom again. Yes, that's what mom <laughs> taught me a long time ago. You can't just be a nice guy. You can't just be a productive guy. You have to be both. I see. That is quite a journey. And it sounds like you ended up ultimately at a place that you're very happy. Oh, yeah. So I, I, look, I'll say it. I say it actually when we interview applicants for residents, I do a 20-minute chair, chair breakout session. I used to interview you know, full on in the past, but I was like, you know, a breakout session is better where I get to talk to all 10 applicants in that day in a Zoom or a uh, breakout session and kind of express to them what my mission for the department is and what I'm looking for. And I stayed in there all the time. There's just one line. I felt nauseated and wanting to throw up almost everywhere I've worked, at least once, if not 20 times. I have never, ever felt that way coming to NYP Queens. And that's a good thing. Whether it be the colleagues you work with, whether it be the nurses you work with, whether it be the patients you take care of, it's a happy place. And short of moving to Hawaii, it's the happiest place I know in New York. We've already hit on some of the reasons why if a student were applying for an emergency medicine residency, they should apply to the program at NYPQ. What other aspects do you think distinguishes your department and the program there? The bonds you make we'll just say the neediness of the patients in a good way. Like there is a lot of population health within emergency medicine. You are the, the safeguard of all medical care and nowhere does that exist more next than next to JFK airport, right? So <laughs> the closer you are to the international airport, the more likely you're going to take care of people who have the least. So my parents settled near JFK Airport in Brooklyn and then Queens, like most immigrants do. Taking care of people who have very little is gratifying in itself. And many, many areas and departments claim to be the most diverse. I challenge that because diversity is not just, oh, half of our patients are Hispanic. 
oh, half of our patients are Asian. Diversity is about how different people are from each other, whether it be age, gender, or ethnicity or race. So when when I tell you one third of our patients are from Asian, you know, background, which can be Japanese, Korean, uh, Cantonese, Mandarin speaking, Filipino, and many, many others. And then another third are Hispanic Latino from Central America, Mexico, South America. And then another third are everything else. When I mean everything else, I mean African-American, American, like in terms of United States born and grown or from all of the other Eastern European countries. I mean, there is no diversity like you see at Queens. We use translation devices, which are video or audio for 50% of our patients. I mean, and it's not all just one language. It's not like, oh, half of my patients speak English and half speak Spanish. I think before the interview, you mentioned the number of languages that were requested. How many was that again? 114. 114. Granted, it's always the top 10. There's Bangladeshi, there's Hindi and Urdu, there's Japanese, there's Korean, there's Mandarin, there's Cantonese, there's Spanish, obviously, there's Creole. I mean, there's a top 10, but at some point we've been able to translate for a hundred and and I think it was 14 or 16, it's somewhere, it's in the teens, 100 and teens, different languages. And that just shows you how diverse the Queen's environment is. And honestly, quite honestly, our nurses and our techs and everyone are just as diverse and they're just as helpful, kind as any, any of our patients. We recently interviewed the uh, chief policy officer for the NRMP, who told us that the number of osteopathic graduates applying to and matching EM has increased over the last few years. Does this surprise you? And why do you think that this is? So it doesn't surprise me. I don't know if it's a true rise or maybe percentage because overall desire to care for people who are at the worst of their lives is something that I think all physicians have always wanted, but they're turning to more. So I remember our class at NICOM, and there were, I mean, at least 15% of the people were applying to emergency medicine. I think there was like a class of 250 and 34 people had applied to emergency medicine. The match rate was not as high as I think it is now. Of those 25 people who matched, I think 10 of them went to St. Barnabas. So I think maybe the expanding beyond osteopathic only residencies with, you know, with the combination of all the residency programs has made people feel like they can match in emergency medicine more easily. And that's why the maybe the application rate is going up. I can just say that emergency medicine, like I said before, I mean, it is public health. You take care of anybody and everybody and all complaints. So when you go on a, a Wikipedia search or a Google search or whatever search and you figure out what osteopathic medicine is all about, you, you keep seeing that word holistic, right? Right. What does holistic mean to you? To me, it means whole, taking care of everything and everybody. What else embodies that more than emergency medicine? Nothing. Have you have I delivered a baby? Yeah. Have I taken care of critical critical care patients? Sure. Have I taken care of psychiatric patients all the time? Have I taken care of urgent care type patients who honestly didn't even need to come to a hospital but did? Yes. Have I taken care of a heart attack? An appendicitis? Have I taken care of a stroke? Have I taken care of a sepsis? So what else encompasses all of medicine other than emergency medicine? 
So I don't know why you'd want to be any other type of doctor. (laughs) (laughs) And you've seen the ads, right? You know, uh, on the airplane. Oh, my God, someone's sick. Everyone hides, but the ER doctor raises his hand, right? Does the program at NYPQ require that DO applicants take the USMLE for consideration? And do you feel that this helps them if they do? So I'll say this way. We get for our nine per year spots, we get over a thousand applications. So you have to, there's no way. Some programs say they look at every single one. I don't know how. Okay. You have to have some filters. The filters are not MDDO. The filters are scores. So apples to apples, you know. So I, I took the USMLE. I know that's a future question. Yes, I took the USMLE because it's apples to apples. That's the only reason. As DOs, we know, we learn medicine as well as anybody else. The USMLE kind of tests that medical knowledge of biochemistry, physiology, depending on the step you're taking. You know, step two takes the more clinical knowledge. The osteopathic exam, complex. Okay, so I took, I took both. The complex test that plus other stuff. So it's a harder exam. I will tell you up front. It's a much harder exam. And if the majority of the programs are testing your knowledge and want to compare you to other applicants, I think it is important to take both exams. I do. Because many programs like ours want to see the complex score as a not comparison, but as a filter. So we know, I mean, it has nothing to do with DOs or MDs, but a score that's below the 50 percentile, we're not interviewing MD or DO applicants because we have to choose 150 we're interviewing. How are we going to choose the 150 we're interviewing? There has to be some filters on it. Certainly when you're receiving, did you say 1,000 applicants? Yes. And of the 1,000, I would say four to 500 don't get past the filter. The other 500 are considered and looked at, but 300 are considered by true faculty before that. So yeah, it's it has to be that way. That sounds like quite a process, though. Even uh, even after you cut down the number to a few hundred, eventually someone has to look at it and decide who is part of the, you say, 150 that is extended an interview? Yeah. And 150, we end up ranking the majority of them. There's a DNR. I hope you know, just to share with me. <laughs> I, I know if you heard about it. It's not do not resuscitate. do not rank. There's some people you meet and you're just like, yeah, no, I'd rather be empty than have this person here. And that's rare. Okay. But every program has it. And I think the overall process is just based on the volume of applications because the better process would be to review every single application, read every single personal statement, see the grades, comparisons. It's just very, very hard to do that with the sheer number of applicants who apply. Certainly as a fourth year medical student right now, I can say that many times this process can appear very open. And I think this will give especially our uh, EM inclined folks a bit more of an insight as to what goes on behind the scenes. And I want to share what I, I usually give the speech at graduation, <laughs> residency graduation, but I'll give it now. There is the idealistic, there is the pessimistic, and there's a realistic approach to everything. You can be whoever you are and have whichever approach you want, but the realistic approach always wins. 
So you can be idealistic and think, why aren't they reading through every single application? You can be pessimistic and say, oh, God, yeah, of course not. You need the smartest people. Or you can be realistic and saying we need some filters and then we need to read two to 300 of the applications of the people who are the most likely not. And you'll miss some, right? Of the other 700 you didn't consider, there's some amazing people from foreign schools or other schools who really should get your attention. It's not feasible. So it's about what's feasible in life and in programs and in departments that usually wins out. We've interviewed a few emergency medicine program directors who are proponents of uh, osteopathic manipulation, but don't really think that the workflow in the ER is conducive to that. But what are your thoughts on this? So from the education I had is you don't do HVLA, you don't do you don't do anything dramatic until you do myofascial first, right? You loosen the patient up, you get them in the right environment. How long does that take? I don't know. How long are ER lengths of stay? What are we judged on by CMS, DOH? Is lengths of stay time to doctor, time to this? So I can say it is feasible in certain in, in certain situations, but it's not overall feasible in a 150 census ED that should be holding 75. And anybody who's done an ER rotation, either a Barnabas or a Jacoby or a Good Sam, fully understand that the space allocations of what an emergency department should have and does have for the amount of patients they have is never feasible. So is it possible? That's idealistic. Mm-hmm. Is it never applicable? Is pessimistic. There is a realistic approach. So can it be applied? Yes. In specific situations, when you have the time to do so, because the most valuable t- commodity you have in life is your time. Whether it would work, is it spent at home, is it spent with your children or your colleagues? So is that time best spent with the one patient to do the myofascial for 35, 50, 40, whatever minutes you need to get them ready to do what you need to do to help them long term? Or is it better spent seeing the STEMI? I don't know. It depends on your department. It depends on the acuity of your department. It depends on the resources available to your department at the time. Do I think OMM does it or does not does it not have a role in your department as an emergency department? Depends on your emergency department. I want to just transition into a few personal questions. You mentioned that you did the MBA more or less just for fun because it was available. Have there been any circumstances where the MBA ended up coming in handy? Yes. And I'll specifically say it only matters to non-doctors. For some reason, that MBA degree makes non-doctors think that you speak their language. Doctors don't really care about master's degrees because we have the highest degree possible. We're a medical doctor, right? MD or DO, I mean, it is the highest level degree you can get. People who don't have those degrees seem to think that an MBA or an MS or an MPH seem to matter. For those people, yeah, it helps because they just seem to acknowledge that you're a doctor who understands more than medicine. That's about it. So if there are any medical students or residents who are ultimately inclined towards going into an administrative position, would you suggest that they also pursue the MBA? I would suggest that you keep your minds open 
and pursue anything that increases your funder knowledge. If you think the MBA or the master's in public health is going to be a detriment and going to be castor oil, don't do it. It's not worth it. And definitely don't do it during medical school. Because what I learned in my MBA was applicable, but it would have been far more applicable if I learned it now. If I went to an executive MBA or went to a at NYPQ, we offer an admin and an academic fellowship. Mm-hmm. In the academic fellowship, we, we offer a master's of education. For admin fellowship, we offer, it's a two-year program, we offer an MBA. What I've seen is the people who do the MBA after they're already doctors find that it's much more applicable to their future than somebody like me. I learned the fundamental skills. I understood what organizational behavior is, how to influence people, all that stuff. But when you're a doctor, you learn it differently. You kind of apply it more to real case scenarios than just fund of knowledge. So do I recommend it? If you're interested in it, as I said before, I did the MBA because I want to learn more. I'm just one of those people that just like, oh, that's a problem. I want to try to learn more about it and fix it. If you're not that person, don't do it. If you are, go for it. It certainly does sound like you do keep yourself busy. On that topic, how do you maintain your work-life balance? Technology and organization. It's just those two things, simple. I know what's important to me. Most people do. My children, I have four, come first. Sorry, my five, my wife. I can't. <laughs> okay, so my five come first. We always leave our wives out of it, even though they support us the most. But yes, different people do it different ways. They buy iPads. They, my calendar is my holy grail. If I have a thought about something I need to do, I add it as a to-do on my calendar. I don't leave anything unchecked on my calendar. Look, no one can do everything in one day. But if I add it to my calendar today, I move it to tomorrow. If it's something that can wait till tomorrow, but it never gets deleted from my calendar until it's done. And same with my inbox. I move things out of my inbox when they're done to folders. I have like probably 170 folders, but it doesn't get out of my inbox till it's done. That's why text messages are useless. They're useless communication. They're they're passive aggressive, mostly, if you have anything on the <laughs> You can say anything in a text that you want without ever expecting a response. So, And you can't keep track of text. So basically organization, what I just explained. And in terms of passion, like, why am I doing this? The simple reason is not my paycheck, because if you divided the amount of hours I work by my paycheck, I make less than a clinical attending, right? I mean, if you divide up the amount of hours I put in between home life and whatever life and sacrificing focused attention on my children, by the paycheck I get, I make less than somebody who just only work clinical shifts. So why do I do it? I do it because I want my colleagues, my nurses, everyone's lives to be better so they feel more productive in providing good care. And if you don't want to do that, don't be a boss, a leader. Work shifts, enjoy your life, turn off your phone, go home, and don't care about anything except your shifts. But if you want more, gratification out of your life and that you helped and assisted more people than just the patients you saw that's my life honestly that's inspirational i think this is a good time to hit on our final question which was what was the best piece of advice that you received throughout your education i mean it can be from 
when you were growing up, it can be from college, medical school, residency, at any point in your life, what was the best piece of advice that you had received? So I can talk about what my mother said, but I think I've talked enough about my mom before everyone thinks I'm a mama's boy. Okay, so I'll leave my mother out of it. Tell you that Dr. John Bertolini, one of my first bosses within Envision Healthcare, simply said, you can't listen while you're talking. Pretty simple. Where everyone says that you can multitask. You really can't. You can prioritize. So today, are you listening or are you talking? If you're listening, then you're actually hearing what people need as opposed to what you think they want. So if you want to be a true leader, you can't if you're always talking. You have to listen. What was it? White men can't jump. I don't know if you ever saw that movie. You know, are you hearing me? Are you listening to me? Whatever the what the term was. If you you think you know what people need and want, and people think that all the time. So you only learn that by listening to people without talking or judging. And then number two, you learn it by stepping in their shoes. So anybody who wants to be a leader, if you will stop working clinically and taking care of patients, you will lose your connection to your staff, your connection to your patients, and you will lose your connection to reality. So everyone should be doing what we were meant to be, why we went to NICOM. We went to NICOM because we wanted to be doctors, right? If you ever stop being doctors, you've lost the mission. Dr. Sharma, thank you so much for taking time out of your evening for this incredible talk. It was an absolute pleasure having you on the podcast today. It was my pleasure. Thank you, though. This concludes our episode of Do or Do Not. Send all inquiries, comments, suggestions, and even let us know if there's someone you want us to interview to do or do not podcast at gmail.com. Don't forget to like us on Facebook at Do or Do Not Podcast for updates. If you enjoyed our podcast, please share it with your classmates and administration. We have plenty of more interviews lined up, and we're excited to share them with you. This is Tian Yu Shea. Thank you guys so much for listening to Do or Do Not.